Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 32. Guests, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and absolutely love uh, to do so. We're going to continue our series through the book of Genesis here in chapter 32, which we have uh, titled God's Story of Creation to restoration. If you're a guest, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not particularly what I have to say. We want to know how we can be made right uh, with him through his son, Jesus. And we believe that the whole Bible points us to Jesus, his work and life, and ultimately his return here for uh, his people. And uh, we're going to continue in worship by coming to this time, which we call preaching as we walk through books of the Bible Together. If you do not have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard black covered Bibles in front of you and turn to page 27 to follow along with us. What is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? I, when I think about fear for myself, I remember a story. Ash and I were living actually in a parsonage. I served as a youth pastor in Durham for a few years. And uh, one night we had cooked dinner, everything was fine, we were hanging out. And uh, we see this weird uh, blob in the, the corner of our dining room. We didn't know what it was. So we turn the lights on, walk over there very slowly. And to my surprise, it's a, the most gigantic spy I've ever seen in my life. Bigger than a tarantula. I mean, it's bigger than everything. I mean, it's sitting there in the corner. And I'm like, what are we going to do? Because I look at my wife and say, look, I know I'm the man of the house, but I'm not dealing with that. I just, I can't do that. <laughs> So as we go back and forth, we watch it. We're like, what can we smash this thing with? We've got no idea what we're going to do. And so what do I do? I'll do what every good pastor would do. I go and grab the biggest systematic theology book I've got. We wrap it in, uh, in uh, not tenfold, it was saran wrap. Wrap that thing up and I stood on a chair, or Ashley stood on a chair, and she, <laughs> she, dro she dropped that thing splat on that spider. And I'm telling you, it was so big that the legs shot out from underneath that, that book. I'm, I'm like watching, right? You know, I'm like, okay, what, what's happening? Did he get up and, you know, did he walk away? No, he was dead. But even now, we, as we moved into uh, our, our home, we've been there for a few years. There are spiders. They get up on the ceiling. I'm like, Ashley, where are you at? I need you to take care of these spiders for me. I actually uh, hate spiders. They're terrible. And I wish God wouldn't have created them. I understand why he did, but I don't like them at all. But there are some fears that we have that we're just not going to we don't want to deal with. Maybe for some of you, like legitimately, you don't want to, you're afraid of fire or you're afraid of the dark or, or whatever it may be. There are other things though in life that we're afraid of, like coming face to face uh, with someone that has hurt us or someone that we've hurt. Here in our story, Jacob is coming back to the promised land as uh, he, he left because he cheated his brother out of both his blessing and his birthright. And so God, as, we, as Katie just read, has promised Jacob, hey, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to make you prosperous. But to do that, you're going to have to come back into the promised land and you're going to have to face Jacob. You're going to have to face Esau. You're going to have to make sure that you trust me and rely on me. That's where we pick up here in Genesis chapter 32. Is Jacob going to trust God to finish his promises? So as we look here through the chapter, here's what we're going to see this morning. Jacob learns that he must rely on the Lord to receive the promise as he prepares to confront Esau. Now, if you're a disciple today and you've called the name of Jesus, how do, you, how do we actively obey Christ? How do we actively trust the Lord? And it's really this one main idea. 
We can only receive the promises of God by relying on his transforming power. We can only receive the promises of God by relying on his transforming power. Now, remember also, as we've said throughout the book of Genesis, there's really three stories going on in really every Old Testament passage. There's really three stories happening. We know right now Jacob is the one going to the promised land. He's going to have to 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 face his brother Esau, whom he cheated. And that's the story that helps us understand what God was doing in his people. But there's a second story. The second story is the people of Israel, which really picks up in the book of of the Exodus where Moses uh, is called by God to take the Israelites away from Egypt into the promised land. And they are hearing this story in a particular way. And we're going to talk about that towards the end of our sermon. But that's the second story happening. The third story is the ultimate story. What is God doing to restore his people to himself? And if, if you're a believer today, he's done that through Jesus Christ. And now we need to look at this chapter in light of those three stories. And so we can only receive the promises of God by relying on his transforming power. Will you, will we rely only, solely on God's transforming power? This morning, church, I want us to focus on that main idea. It's our sole application point for the sermon. This is going to stay up because I want you to walk through the Bible with me and I want you to see that we can only rely on God's transforming power. Now, I will make some small, quick application points as we walk through the story, but I want you to follow along with me and I want you to remember that we must rely on God's transforming power to receive his promises. So we pick up here in verse 1, right after Jacob has left Laban, and after Laban, his father-in-law, has kissed his children and grandchildren and said goodbye. So look there at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. And when he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called the place Maharim. And so what we see here. In this place, Jacob, before he can enter the promised land, God's angels met him. And this signaled that this was the presence of God and his protection. God was not going to let Jacob enter the promised land before he knew that this is God's place. Not that the world is not all of God's, but that this place, the promised land, is where God's people are going to be. And remember, as Katie just read back in Genesis 28, the angels appeared to Jacob at Bethel, and that was where God gave his promise. But interesting enough, Jacob doesn't fear the angels here, but notes that this is God's place. Literally, this name means two camps, that this is both, yes, here before me, but it is also a place where God is. Now, he's just left one danger But to enter the promised land, he must face another danger, his brother. He must face the brother that he fears, that he has cheated out of his birthright and blessing. So what does Jacob do? Look at verse 3. He sent messengers ahead of him and his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. Now, you can probably imagine what's going on in Jacob's mind. You can probably imagine the thoughts that are running through his head. It's been 20 years since they have seen each other face to face. Do you play these kinds of conversations in your mind? Do you try to think ahead about what, what, is, my, what is my brother going to say to me knowing that I've hurt him? The stress enters into Jacob's mind and he now must encounter Esau 
And he must trust the Lord. Look at verse 4. He commanded them, that's the messengers. And now pay attention to these words that he uses. You are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. Delayed's a long word for 20 years. And have taken, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. Jacob, at the very least, in this language, is trying to undo the birthright that he has stolen. He wants to give back to Esau what is Esau's and gain his acceptance by demonstrating humility. We're going to see that theme of humility all throughout this chapter. You see, Jacob says, my Lord, that is, sir, you are higher than me. I am your servant. He's trying to humble himself before his brother. And so Jacob has to wait for his messengers to come back. Look at verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. That's all the information we get. That's all, that's all, that, that's all that Jacob knew. Not that Esau's coming to, be, to, to forgive him. Not that Esau's going to come and welcome him back. But he's got 400 men coming with him. This could mean more. This could mean that Esau's coming to take back what is his. Maybe Esau hasn't forgotten what Jacob did to him. And look at verse 7, and rightly so, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Literally, the walls of fear are closing in on him. Maybe some of you are claustrophobic, and so when you get in those spaces, you feel like all the walls are closing in. Jacob right now, in his heart and his mind, all that fear is starting to press on him. Jacob couldn't mount a defense against 400 men. There was no way he was going to be able to win that battle. He div- so look at what he does. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks and herds and camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one will escape. Now, this is a passive but very crafty strategy. He, when he divides up these two uh, camps of his, he basically says, look, if, if Esau comes to this one, I'm going to go with this one and get out of here. And we know in the next chapter, He's separated by what he cared for. And so he separates these two things and he's trying to watch. What is Esau and his men going to come after? And so Jacob is hopeful that one camp can escape and that he would flee with them. But now look what Jacob does after he he divides them. Look, verse 9, we see him pray. We see him pray because he's afraid of Esau. Verse 9 says, Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham... God of my father, Isaac. He begins with God as his God, God of his fathers. Remember how God has revealed himself to Jacob in chapter 28. I am the God of your father, Abraham, of your father, Isaac. I am your God. And so Jacob comes to God and says, you are my God. I've got nowhere else to go but you. The Lord You who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. He he gently reminds God, have you ever done this? He gently reminds, hey, God, you told me to do this. You've commanded this in your word, and so I'm trying to do it, but I need you to come through for me. Jacob just gently says, God, I know you've, you've asked me to do this, and I'm trying to trust you. Where are you? Often obeying God leads us into difficult circumstances and difficult situations. Why? Not just so God can can show us how weak we are, but so that God can begin to work out his plan of reconciliation and restoration. Jacob had to face Esau. 
if he was going to go into the promised land and prosper. They had to get along. They had to reconcile. And so Jacob was like, God, I need you to do this for me. And look at his disposition in verse 10. I am unworthy. I've already seen his humility toward Esau. Now his humility towards God. All of the kindness and faithfulness. These two words here sum up this Hebrew word for faithful covenant love. Your kindness and your faithfulness. You have shown your servant. That's Jacob. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff. That's when he left. And now I've come back here and I have two camps. God has, has kept his promise. Jacob left and ran from his brother with nothing but a staff. And now he's returned so much so that he can actually divide all of his stuff, all of his family into two. And he, can, he, he shows that he has actually prospered. He knows it. And here's the request in verse 11. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he will, may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. Jacob just admits straight out, God, I am afraid of this. Like all of us, Jacob trusts God, but he also has doubts about his situations and his circumstances. Jacob says, you have said, I will cause you to prosper. I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to count. God, if Esau attacks and he attacks my wives and my children, then everything you promised is gone. You promised that. And Jacob interprets God's statement in Genesis 28, which God said, I will be with you. Jacob interprets that as, I will make you prosper. Anyone that God is with, they do well. And Jacob locates this prayer in God's promise. In God's promise to Abraham, in the very covenant of God. Jacob says, God, you are the the God of my father. You have promised this. Are you going to keep it? Please rescue me. Although Jacob has used his wits and crafts as a seemingly good plan and strategy to make it out alive from Esau, if he attacks, those will not ultimately save him. And they will not bring reconciliation between his brother. We cannot rely on our own strength. Whether we think we can talk our way out of something or we have a better idea, we must rely on the Lord. And the way that we do that, first and foremost, is through prayer. Oftentimes we think that we go to God to get something or we, we pray and it's, it's kind of useless because nothing happens when in reality what we are demonstrating before the Lord is that we ultimately need him. That's what prayer is for, that we demonstrate our need and our reliance on him. In times of fear or distress, are you pushed to pray to God? Do you know that he cares and he wants to listen? Do you know that he is there for you? But let me also ask maybe a more difficult question. Are you only driven to prayer in difficult times? Are you actually cultivating a life of prayer, a life of dependence? Not so that we can go get things from God, but so that we can be molded into the kind of people who rely on God. My high school basketball coach used to always tell us, he said, what you do in practice, you'll do in the game. You know, at, you know as high school players, we kind of always thought that we would, we, we, under the lights, we'd show up and we would, you know, we'd play it the best we could. But he always told us, no, the habits you form in practice are going to be how you play in the game. Well, church, everyday life is practice, and those difficult times are the games. 
And where if we are not cultivating a life of prayer now, when things are okay, when things are smooth, then we will not go to God in prayer. At least we will not go to him rightly. Instead, we will be going to God to get something from him and not to rely on him, no matter whether the circumstances change or not. You see, our circumstances, our difficulties must be the place that we cultivate this. Why? So that we shape that God is shaping us, prayers, much less about what we get from God and much more about how he shapes us in those times. And then out of that, he's to ready us for whatever comes our way. So Jacob ends the prayer and look what he does in verse 13. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. Now look at this gift that he brings. Verse 14, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. What a gift. This is a gift for a king. Jacob is seriously trying to give back what he has taken from his brother. And it shows his extreme regret and humility. And you may be wondering, just a quick aside, why does he give more females than males? Well, what he's showing to, to Esau is that you, if you have the females, you've got enough males that you can actually produce more cattle and more things. I'm giving you the best of the best of what I have. And so Jacob, this gift is now going to be given to him. In verse 16, he entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. So Jacob has just prayed. He's, he's given, he's, he's relinquishing the control over his possessions But we find Jacob once again crafting a plan to ensure his safety just in case God doesn't come through. We see Jacob's faith. We also see his struggle deeply with trusting God and relying on his power only. Verse 17, and he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are those ahead of you? Then tell him they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. And he also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animal, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You're also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift and he's going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. Jacob's hope here, it's... He's not trusting the Lord to broker that forgiveness. He's like, hey, if this gift, will it actually appease my brother and will he accept me? Will he forgive me now? Verse 21, so the gift was sent ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with his possessions. Jacob is alone. He has sent everything and everyone ahead of him. He is by himself, hoping to keep them safe from the attack of his brother Esau. Now, the story without hesitation moves into the climax of the story. Look there at verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. There was no warning. This was a surprise attack. It was in the dark. He didn't know who he was fighting And really, it fast forwards to the end. Look there at verse 25. When the man saw it, he could not defeat him. He struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. 
First of all, this is a clue to us that this is no ordinary man. Jacob will now be forever disabled. Verse 26, then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You might ask, why is this so important? Why is it so important for Jacob to let go? Well, through the night, he's wrestling this man. And if dawn comes, if Jacob, if he's asking for a blessing, he thinks it's God. He thinks that it is God, whether it's one of his angels, but this person, this man represents God. And if the sun begins to shine, then Jacob's life is in danger because no one sees God and lives. But Jacob, he's holding on for dear life. He's, he's like, I'm not letting go. I might not be able to walk, but I'm going to hold on and you are not going to leave me until you bless me. And so really at this moment, Jacob is physically subdued. He can do nothing to this man. And he gets down to the real business, though. At least the man does. Look at verse 27. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob, he replied. The man obviously knew this was Jacob. We think this was either God and some sort of incarnate. Uh, Could be Christ, we're not quite sure. Or it could be an angel who was there in the place of God, representing God. And so this man knows who Jacob is. He knows who he was fighting But the question calls Jacob to admit something, even to wrestle with. Because when Jacob said his name, he was admitting that I am Jacob, the deceiver. I am Jacob, the one who had cheated my father and my brother and left my family. I am that Jacob. Because in their times, names represented character. And Jacob had to admit to this man, I am Jacob, the deceiver. We cannot rely on God's power unless we're willing to admit our weakness. Unless we're willing to admit to God, I actually can't do anything to change this. Jacob had to reveal his true character, his true nature, that he was sinful, that he was the deceiver. And church notice, this wrestling, when God showed up to Jacob, it was after a whole day and night of him stressing about meeting Esau. The anxiety was weighing on him to worry about encountering his brother. Church, God often breaks us down physically, emotionally, and spiritually to bring us to a place of humility. God knew exactly what he was doing. He was not caught off guard. When he strikes Jacob, he knew in that moment, now Jacob couldn't rely on his physical strength anymore. But he was going to have to turn to something else. And as soon as Jacob responds and admits who he is to this man, look at verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. This man, he strikes his hip and Jacob's gonna, he does admit, hey, I am, I am Jacob. But, but the man says, not anymore. You've admitted who you really are, but I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your nature. I'm going to change your character. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? Why why do you ask my name, Jacob? You know who I am. You really know that I'm the only one that can change your name. I'm the only one who can make you different than who you are. I am the God that has power to transform you. And look, there's a man He blessed him there. God is the only one who can change a name. 
And remember, God is the one that's changed the names of his, as, of his grandfather. Right? He changes Abram's name to Abraham. His new name means that he had wrestled with God and won, not because he was more physically superior, because he had wrestled God so much so that he had understood his weakness and his frailty. Jacob has a new name and a new direction. He has a new status. He will not now strive in his own strength and might, but he will cling to God and trust him. You see, Jacob's fleshly weapons, whether it was his strength or his staff, were useless. They failed him to fight this man who is God. And even though Jacob struggled all night with him, he was never going to win the fight. Dad, you know this. Your children come to you and they want to wrestle, especially your sons. And they, want to, they think they can, they can get you and knock you over and hold you down, but you may let them for a time. Right? You want them to keep coming back. You want, you want to keep playing with them. But ultimately, when it's time to be done, what do you do? You stand up, picking them up in your arms. This is what God does to Jacob. Jacob had no chance of beating him. Jacob's physical strength was no match for him. But God let Jacob wear himself down emotionally, physically, and spiritually to the point where Jacob was willing and ready to admit who he was. And look at Jacob's response in verse 30. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. Jacob's explanation was not simply that he had seen God face to face, which was extraordinary, but most importantly, that his life had been spared though he had seen God face to face. God had come as close to Jacob as was imaginable. God came to Jacob so that he would remind him that it is only God's power that can transform him. And so seeing God face to face now, he can truly face Esau. He can truly stand up to him and be ready because all he has to fear is God. He does not have to fear his brother Esau anymore. He can look him right in the eye. Verse 31, the sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle, that is the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. So Jacob, now fully humbled, yes, spiritually, but absolutely physically, can only rely on God. This limp would be a forever reminder of his struggle with God and not succeeding to beat God, but in succeeding to cling to God. God shows that he knocked out all of Jacob's self-sufficiency. Jacob would now be ready to receive the promised land. He would now be ready to finally get the promise that God has made. Church, if we're to accomplish God's uh, what he wants us to do, it must be accomplished by faith in him, not in the strength of our flesh. You will never accomplish what God wants you to do in your own power. You might fool yourself for a time. And look, it's really easy. It's really easy, if I'm being honest with you, to even to think about the spirit, if we want to categorize it, which we don't want to do, but if, even in the spiritual things in life, if we're going to be successful, it's really easy to do it in our own power and to think that we're strong enough and able enough and are talented enough to do what God's asked us to do. But at the end, it'll, it'll all crumble and fall away because God is not the one sustaining and we're not relying on him. 
Church, may we cling to God in the same way Jacob clings to God. Jacob, who is now crippled in his natural strength, has become bold in faith. If he faced God and he can walk with a limp and that staff all the way up to Esau and ask for his forgiveness and do exactly what God has asked him to do. And so we've seen Jacob come face to face with God, being humbled so that he fully relies on God's transforming power. But before we can think about how this passage truly applies to us today, let's remember these three stories. Jacob, We've seen him experience God's transforming power by clinging to him, not letting go, and in humble submission to God, repenting and trusting him fully. But think about the people of Israel. Will they trust God? As as Israel heard this story from Moses, they would have soon come face to face with the Canaanites. Will they rely on God or they rely on something else? Well, if you know the story, once the, spy comes, the spies come back and they get the report that these are giants and there's no way they can beat them, they cower in fear. And they say, we're not, going, we're not going in there. And so God says, that whole generation is going to stay outside the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die off. Because they did not rely fully on God. The point of the story for Israel, when they're hearing this, to enter the promised land would be significant. Israel's victories would not come by physical strength and might and not in war. They would only gain the promises of God through divine blessing. That God would actually give the promised land to them. And we see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. That God would, would whittle down armies so that the only, the only possible way is that God gets the glory. That God gets what he's supposed to. That the people actually rely on him fully. Israel need to learn that they needed to rely on God more than anything else. More than anyone else. And church, you know that they fail in this in so many ways. First, they want a human king. They don't want God as their king. They want a human king. Which turns out pretty badly. Ultimately, if you've read the the books of the kings. I mean, just really, really bad stuff happens because they wanted to rely on other people and not God. And then they ultimately, because they did not rely on God as their king, they turned to idols. So much so that God says, I don't even know you. And God exiles them from the promised land because they did not learn to fully trust in God. Well, how is it different with us? If we, as the church, how are we relying on God's transforming power? How will God complete his plan of restoration? How can we identify with the Israelites and Jacob, but not sin in the way they did? Do you struggle in faith? Do you struggle to rely on God? Do you struggle to cling to him and his promises? I don't think I'm the only one in the room today that would say I struggle with trusting God fully and relying on his promises. All of us struggle like Jacob. All of us struggle like Israel until God breaks down our pride. You see, church, the only way God is able to do this is by sending Christ into the world, that he himself comes in the form of a man, fully God, fully man, lives a perfect life, A perfect life. And what did he do? He relied fully on God. 
But then, instead of humbling his servants like us, Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. And Jesus hangs on the cross, pays for our sin. God's wrath is poured out on him and he's killed for us. He was buried for three days. But after that third day, because Jesus relied on the power of God, he was raised from the dead. And now vindicated that he is fully God, fully man, king of the universe. And now calls us to, will we actually trust and rely on that same power? You see, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, that's the same power that lives in you if you are in Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives inside of you through the Holy Spirit. So will you fully rely on God? That's the power to change us like God changed Jacob. But transformation doesn't come in our own strength. The gospel transforms anyone who submits their life to him in Christ, thereby relying on the promises of the gospel. You see, these promises in the gospel are the same promises that were made to God's people in the Old Testament. Are we going to trust God's promises, yes or no? And we see that ultimate promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You can only experience transformation by clinging to Jesus. Church, you can only, you can only experience transforming power if you cling to Jesus. It's not in our strength. It's not in our abilities or our talents or our giftings. You can only hold on to him if you want to be transformed. And now that Christ has come, he's ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, that his life, death, and resurrection has shown us that, that we don't wait for a promised land. We wait for the kingdom of God to be fully realized here in the new heavens and the new earth. But how do we receive that? How do we receive that kingdom? We don't receive that kingdom by our own hard work. We receive it only by God's grace. Jesus says, and it's interesting, he's talking uh, to some people, at, who, who will be saved? Is there, are there going to be people saved in Luke 13? And Jesus says, there will be people saved, but you need to strive for the narrow door, the narrow gate. What's, what's the narrow gate? It's Jesus. He says he is that narrow gate. You can only experience God's promises by clinging to Jesus, much like Jacob clinged to this man who was God. That is the only thing that will bring you into God's presence. It isn't how strong you are. It isn't how, how great your grip is, but rather how great your Savior is that you hold on to. You see, we, we come to pastors like this in the Old Testament and say, just have more faith. And what we're really saying is, you need to have more faith. And that's missing the whole point. It's not about how great your faith is. It's about how great your faith is in who it is. That we trust in this great Savior who defeated death and sin and Satan. It's that we hold on to him. That's how we rely on his promises. Fully just gripping Christ every single day. And we've seen these themes of, of the, and I've told you the story of, of, of Israel leaving in the Exodus. The night before they left, the last plague, God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn in Egypt. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to take back all the things that have been done to my people. But God gives Israel 
uh, command. He says, if you want to be spared from this, then you need to take the blood of an animal and you need to spread it over your doorpost. And that's when the angel of God would come into the camp of Israel and Egypt. If anyone, it could be Egyptian or Israelite, if they put the blood of the animal over the doorpost, then they would pass by. Well, I heard Don Carson, great theologian, he was talking about this, and he said, think about those two men in that house. Think about the conversations they have. One man says, I am sure that God will pass by because he has promised us that he will. He will not take our firstborns. But you have another guy in the house, they were share, maybe sharing the house, and he's just worried to death. Is God going to take my firstborn son? Is God going to kill him because I don't have enough faith? Well, what happens after that night, the angel of of the Lord passes by that house. Not because the one man's faith was stronger and not because that one man's faith was weaker. He passed by because the blood of the lamb was over the doorpost. And so for church, for you, if you are going to be with Christ and be with God and get to his kingdom, it's only by the blood of the lamb of Jesus Christ that you can be brought into that kingdom. It's not about how smart you are, how much you know about the Bible, how much faith you have. It's about the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. And church, may we never forget that we must cling to him and trust him. Don't don't be fooled into believing that you can somehow in your own strength make it happen. It's only by God in Jesus Christ, that we can gain his promises. We must humbly submit ourselves to him and cling to him, relying on him every single day. Church, I pray that you're encouraged to cling to Christ and to rest in him. Whatever you may be facing, whatever circumstances there are today, will you cling to Christ and trust him for his transforming power? Pray with me. God, I ask you today, would you make us a people of of great faith? Not because we want to have strong faith, but because our faith is in Jesus Christ. That our faith is worth something because it's in him. And so God, would you help us cling to you? The promises of the gospel, the promises of our Lord. Would you help us hold on? Would you help us strive with you? God, I pray for all of us that we would solely rely on you. God, I pray that it's this gospel and this faith that would would flow into our everyday lives, whether it's in our workplace or in our homes, in our families, in our hobbies. Would this faith demonstrate your power, not ours, but your power? God, we need you. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit.